All right. I was thinking this evening, uh, I mentioned the first service. I think I mentioned it maybe both services, but at least in the first service that you know, sometimes one of the risks of being involved in local church is not being appreciated, your service not being appreciated. And uh, several people have commented about how, uh, you know, preaching this morning, preaching this evening, and it's funny, it's, it's noticed, but then, you know, someone like Pastor Farrell who does it often enough, you do it often enough, you serve often enough, and people will just not notice anymore, and there won't be any, any gratitude. So just a renewed appreciation for, for Pastor Farrell, who uh, every Sunday serves us so well, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. All right, well, we're now in the third session, the absence of morals. So um, I'm going to begin here just by kind of reviewing the overall trajectory. The book lays out a trajectory of steps that have been taken to get us where we are now. Um, And then we'll jump in and particularly look at this step, which would be step number two in that trajectory, the step for tonight, the absence of morals. All right, so... Uh, the first step that uh, Mark covered last week was the turn inward. The turn inward. So I'm not used to running along a uh, PowerPoint here. So one's own feelings and intuitions were given an authoritative place. That was the first step that Mark covered, the authority of self, he termed it. And this step was developed particularly with an eye to the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the movement known as Romanticism. And it's not so much that Rousseau and Romanticism were the cause of this. Um, It's not quite that simple. It's not as though philosophers simply write something and then suddenly that's the way, way all of culture thinks. It's a bit more complicated. In some ways, philosophers are themselves influenced by their culture. Um, And in some ways, they themselves influence culture. So there's an interesting mix there. But at the very least, they're evidence of where the culture's going. I think Pastor Farrell tried to convey that through that concept of a social imaginary as the, the way that there's this intuition. You can't really trace it back. I read this philosopher, and therefore I think this way. But there is this general ethos, this thrust, this um. This intuition with, among a society to think in certain ways. We don't have to argue it. We don't have to put it in propositions. It's just the natural, intuitive way we think. So these two men were the ones who are kind of representative. I say these two men, Rousseau and then the group of people under Romanticism, who were representative of this turn inward. In the foundation of this turn inward, this granting of authority to one's feelings to one's intuition, is the idea that humans are naturally good, but anything that doesn't naturally arise from within the individual, anything that would be imposed on it, is where evil comes from. So naturally good, anything from the outside that would attempt to constrain that or change that would be bad. Whatever naturally wells up within a person is good. The refined world of adults, however corrupted as it is by the imposition of expectations that restrain and by traditions that inhibit, is the enemy and bane of humanity, they would say. 
The irrational intuitions of people are more reliable than the cold logic that people have to be taught. Civilization, which seeks to restrain the impulses of people, corrupts rather than refines. Feeling is superior to reason. So these are, these are all the kinds of concepts or propositions that would lie behind this way of thinking, thinking that Jean-Jacques Rousseau is promoting and then that's evident in the Romantists. And then the second step in this trajectory, the one we'll focus on tonight, is the granting of radical diversity to individuals through the rejection of any kind of inherent moral code built into nature. And then continuing on, just looking forward, we'll be on number two tonight, but in coming lessons in this series, we'll learn about the steps that followed. Step number three, the sexual revolution applied, step one, the turn inward, and step two, the rejection of any kind of moral code built into the fabric of nature, and they applied that to the realm of sexuality. And it's helpful, I think, on this point to notice that the sexual revolution as an outworking of expressive individualism reveals that the sexual revolution is more than we often think it to be. It's not simply that people engage in sex in ways that transgress traditional mores, which is probably how we generally think of it, but that authenticity requires that people practice sex in ways that are consistent with their true selves, which now has become their feelings, right? That's step one. My true self is what I feel within. And this is why attempts to discourage people from such expressions of their authentic selves are considered to be repressive and unethical, a denial of their selfhood. And in this next step, it is not simply that expressive individualism is applied to the realm of sexuality, but that one's true self is determined preeminently by their sexual desires. It is that aspect of their personal feelings that are preeminent among those feelings that define them as a person. Thus, if the early steps led us to think that our inner feelings should be given a certain authority, this step focuses on sexual desire as central to those self-defining inner feelings. And then, the fourth step, if my inner feelings and especially my sexual desires are determinative of who I am, my identity, my true self, then the government in its role of protecting liberty has an obligation to protect my right to express whatever I feel within. So the politicization of expressive individualism. So that's looking steps three and four ahead to where we'll be going, but for now we'll be on step two. So the role of step two in getting us from Rousseau and the Romantics, where, where Mark left us, to our modern world. As you heard about step one, the turn inward, I'm sure that resonated with what you observe around you, that feelings become authoritative, but that falls short of explaining our current situation. There are subsequent developments in Western thought. And the next development, the one we're looking at tonight, is this rejection of any kind of inherent moral code, any kind of inherent obligation or oughtness to simply being a human. 
Rousseau and the Romantics understood that the world had a moral structure or order built into it. So see, at that first stage, they're still affirming that. And that kept them from getting to the place we find ourselves today. So we need to explore this next step. Now, I've been introducing, mentioning, referring to this concept of a moral structure. Any idea what I might be referring to? What do you think that means? Conscience of right versus wrong. So conscience could be included in that, for sure. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Go ahead, Ethan. Yeah, so that would be one particular expression of it. Yeah, yeah, you guys are getting, getting to that. I would define it this way. An inherent or intrinsic indication of what is good and what is evil, what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. So let's use some illustrations to think about this. It's built on the idea of purpose and intentional design. So we can use two examples here. First, let's take the example of a hammer. If I think of it as something that randomly exists without any purpose or design, then I don't have much basis for speaking of how one ought to use it. Right? If I stumble upon a stone that happens to be in the shape of a hammer and, and someone tries to use it for whatever purpose, and I say, no, 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 you must use it as a hammer. Can't you see it's a hammer? It has purpose, and you must use it according to the purpose. You might say, ah, it looks like a hammer, but that seems to be a coincidence. Why are you saying you have to use it this way? But now if we actually take a hammer made by a hammer manufacturer, you, you then seem to have a bit more of a, a basis for saying this is how it ought to be used, right? And the reason is because there is an, kind of an intrinsic, inherent oughtness to how it's used based upon the purpose and the design. There's a limitation to this analogy because we don't think of the hammer manufacturer as having any ongoing authority over how the hammer's used. Once he sells it, it's kind of out of his domain, and we don't really think someone's wrong for using it in a different way. Um, but if we saw someone using it the wrong way, we would at least have a category for someone speaking of how a hammer ought to be used. Again, the oughtness is dependent upon a certain purpose in design. Here's another example. Think of the relationship between people such as a manager and a subordinate to that manager. If we think of these as two people who coincidentally came into contact with each other, we have no basis of speaking about how they ought to relate to one another. But if we understand that an employer intentionally brought them into contact with one another for a purpose for one to be the manager, the other to be the subordinate, then we can judge how they interact as appropriate or inappropriate. And we do that based upon the purpose of the employer, right? What would be some examples of that? We expect there to be a hierarchy, a direction of orders. So if we find the subordinate giving orders to the, the manager, there's something inappropriate about that. And we can speak about that inappropriateness because of the purpose and how that was arranged. And so this also applies to humans. If humans 
are created with an intentional design to fulfill a purpose, then there's an intrinsic expectation that they function in accordance with that purpose and design, such that we can speak of doing otherwise as being wrong or even immoral. That is essentially what I mean by an intrinsic moral structure to the world. There's an, in, an intrinsic, inherent code of what should be done and what shouldn't be done that's not simply determined by any particular society at their whim. So if humans are created to, you know, with an intentional design to fulfill a purpose, then there obviously is an expectation they do that and to rebel against that is, is in some sense wrong. There's a built-in moral standard. And not only is there a built-in moral standard and there's some sense in which defying it is wrong, but also that things don't work when you defy that standard. There's a sense in which defying the moral structure makes for difficulty, but acting consistent with it, it just works. It leads to flourishing. So this we're saying, this moral structure was present in the first stage among Rousseau and the Romantics. They affirmed this moral structure present in the world. They understood all humans to possess a common human nature. And that nature, being hardwired into humans as humans, not something individuals could adjust at will as they desired, that entailed universal morals. Therefore, although they argued that people need to be authentic to their inner selves, they need to be authentic to what they feel or into it within themselves, they could anticipate what people would feel or into it. If there was a narrow bandwidth of what that would look like because, well, they all have a common, shared human nature. There wasn't an endless flexibility or malleability to what humans could appropriately be and do. In their thinking, nature had a stable framework that transcended that of the individual. That is, a commonality that spread across all humanity. For example, for them, they could say that empathy was a common good that naturally wells up within humans until they are corrupted by forces, by influences from outside of themselves. They could assert such universals because they held to a common fabric or nature to all humans. And in this way, they, they weren't quite where we are today. And it is the disappearance of this that marks the second step in this progression. And in some ways, Rousseau and the Romantics uh, were illogical at this point, in that they were already skeptical about the existence of God and certainly didn't think he had any authority over them they needed to yield to, but they still thought of this, we could speak of as an imminent moral structure, a moral structure that was built into creation. And so to consider the development from the first step to the second, we might reflect on the phrase expressive individualism that Pastor Farrell introduced. We might look at it this way. Rousseau and the Romantics believed humans should seek to be true to their inner selves and then express that. So there's the express side of expressive individualism. But the individual part of that phrase doesn't quite apply to them. 
because of their belief in the common human nature and the way that limited the extent to which each individual could be unique or would be unique. But it's that difference, the difference of the individual part in expressive individualism to which we now turn. The, the sense in which now there is nothing that holds all humanity together and has them function according to this common narrow bandwidth that's defined by nature, but now there's no restraints. They, they can do whatever they want. Whatever they feel, it could be anything. That's the individual part within expressive individualism. So, just to put this on the timeline, Rousseau and the Romantics were thinking and writing at the end of the 1700s and the first half of the 1800s. But in the middle to later 1800s, we find figures who were attempting to be more logical. They were saying, if we believe there is no God, why would we believe there is some inherent moral structure to the world? I'm realizing this clock appears incorrect, and I suppose that doesn't mean that I can go as long as I want. Fortunately, we have these digital pocket watches these days, so even if the clock's not working, we're still accountable, aren't we? We'll briefly consider three figures who are representative of this shift. First will be Darwin, Charles Darwin, and the way in which Darwin is representative of or uh, contributes to, with Darwin we might even speak more of a contribution to, the removal of this common human moral fabric should be pretty obvious. If there's no creator who, who's giving guidance to what humans are, then in what sense can we say there is a purpose behind what they are, behind their ontology, behind what they are metaphysically? So it's not reasonable then to think that there's any kind of built-in moral code. They are what they are as a result of chance. So that's one of these figures we can consider. Another one who contributed to this would be Karl Marx. And for him, let's see what I've got here. Come back to that quotation in just a moment. These seemingly universal standards, and so from his perspective, he's aware that many people are, are thinking, it appears to them that there are universal standards, but he's saying we've misinterpreted where those are coming from. They aren't really ontological, built into the fabric of humanity. They're actually just more societal constructs, something imposed by other people. These seemingly universal standards we think we observe, he would say, are really more subjective and not inherent. We have simply all been taught to think this way, and the fact that we all think this way then seems to reinforce it. See, everyone else agrees there's this common way of thinking. Actually, he, this is what he would say, these expectations are simply things that are thought up and promoted by the bourgeois class in their attempt to benefit from it by keeping the proletariat in their place. This is Marx's approach. If, if you don't understand the, different, the issue of class struggle within Marxist thinking, so the bourgeois would be the class that owns the capital, the means of production, kind of the middle class to upper middle class who would essentially be the people you would think of as the, the business owners, the, um, 
the people, the head of corporations, that type of thing. And then the people who run it, the, the day wage laborers who are making it happen on the assembly line, those would be the proletariat within his, his way of thinking. So these expectations are simply something that those in power socially, from a class perspective, have created because it advantages them in some way. Here's a, a quotation. Marx writes, Law, morality, religion are to him so many bourgeois prejudices behind which lurk in ambush just as many bourgeois interests. So all of these things that we might think of laws, we might think, well, that's obvious. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that. That's why our laws are the way they are. That's why there's a commonality across cultures in laws. And he would say, no, it's just that there's always an upper class and a lower class who are in this conflict, and the upper class is the one creating the laws. So whether it's law, whether it's morality, that's particularly and obviously relevant to what we're talking about. This inherent moral structure, no, moral structure, that's what he's got in view and in his sights here. Religion, these are all just prejudices created by those in power, which are really just being motivated by their own interests. For example, if those at the top of the economy benefiting from people's labor tell us that it's good for people to remain sober, just thinking of something, a moral code, right? Don't be drunk. And claim this is a universal truth built into the fabric of nature, it is only, he would say, so that they will profit when their consistently sober workforce consistently shows up to work on Monday mornings ready to work. And so since this, in his estimation, is a tool for the bourgeoisie, that class, to economically exploit the masses, and since Marx was repeatedly, he says regularly, not committed only to analyzing, but to actually action, to, to taking action on the basis of his theories to, to fix the situation, since he's committed to action, to doing something about it, then he sees a necessity to overturn the belief in any kind of inherent moral structure because it is, after all, merely a fiction that the, the class he wants to bring down and replace is, is imposing on others. And the ideas represented by Marx appear in our world in the form of thinking that any suggestion God created, any suggestion that God created humans, and that his purpose for them should direct how we live, is viewed as a power play, as oppressive, as an attempt for one group of people to control another. So, Marx is not always easy to understand, but hopefully simply stated, that's an explanation of how Marx is both downstream from this way of thinking, but also contributing to this way of thinking, and just undermining the idea that there's an inherent moral structure. Next, we'll look at Friedrich Nietzsche, so for Nietzsche, the concern didn't have the same economic focus as it did for Marx. But, so notice that, just repeating that again, with Marx, everything's economic. Everything is viewed through that lens. So Nietzsche's not quite there on that point, but the concern was still that belief in an inherent moral structure was a tool of some to manipulate others and that it should be rejected because it wrongly inhibited people. 
So I do have a quotation here. Let's see if we can read it. Can you guys read that from back there? Yeah, it's decently sized. He writes, man has been educated by his errors. First, he always saw himself only and completely. Second, he endowed himself with fictitious attributes. Third, he placed himself in a false order of rank in relation to animals and nature. Now notice here, beginning with fourth. Notice, these are errors, right? These are his errors. Fourth, he invented ever new tables of goods. So by a table, think of like a, a list and of goods, morally right things. So a, a table of goods would be like a, a list of commandments. He invented ever new tables of goods and always accepted them for a time as eternal and unconditional. So notice how we juxtaposing there. He creates them and yet believes that they're eternal and unconditional. As a result of this, now one and now another human impulse in state held first place and was ennobled because it was esteemed so highly. If we removed the effects of these four errors, we should also remove, remove humanity, humanness, and human dignity. So basically, whatever people are saying this is the way it should be, it's completely relative. For whatever reason, they think that way of being is objective and best, so they objectify it, they, they make it objective, and then they say that's the way it's always been. And he's saying, when we begin to recognize it for its relativity and say there is nothing that's objective about how we ought to live, then he's recognizing we remove humanity, humanness, and human dignity. So he's pretty explicit in even recognizing the, the significance of removing this inherent moral structure to humanity. And now, Carl Truman goes on and basically explains Nietzsche in a little bit simpler terms. This is Carl Truman writing, explaining it, not Nietzsche any longer. In short, the basic error human beings have made is to give themselves a nature, to think in terms of a transcendent category that is prior to and greater than any single individual. He's summarizing Nietzsche. In doing so, they have enslaved themselves to moral codes in giving, given themselves a heteronymous teleology. What does that mean? Heteronymous teleology would simply be like the idea that there is a design in nature that imposes a standard upon us from outside of us. That's what he's got in mind. So they have given themselves, just to fill in there that definition, um, a standard from outside of themselves that they attribute to nature that they do not intrinsically possess. Human beings are rather to create themselves, Nietzsche says, to be free of the demands that the idea of a creator or a metaphysically grounded morality or an abstract and universal concept of human nature would impose on them. So he's, he's saying this is an imposition, and so we need to be freed from that. Freedom for Nietzsche is freedom from essentialism, that's the idea of an inherent moral structure, and when you're freed from that, now for self-creation. You can make yourself whatever you want to be, the individualism part in expressive individualism. So let me just summarize this step that we've briefly looked at in those three figures, Darwin, Marx, and Nietzsche. The lack of a commonality across all humans 
meant that what one person might into it may be very different from what another might into it or feel. And since it is the inner self that is authoritative, no one can say that one is better than another. This is where this step takes us. Each person, each self, has an obligation to be authentic to their own unique feelings, leading to a diversity of truths as determined within. And without anyone being able to judge another one, another person's feelings as being superior. Since the authority is the inner self, and there are therefore as many authorities as there are selves. This obviously requires moral relativism, and thus there can be no universal ethics. There can only be personal tastes. And with this step, there was no longer any inner voice of human nature only the inner voice of the individual. And within modern thinking, to propose that there is some common human nature with an inherent moral structure would be viewed as a power play and attempt to control others for your own advantage. So that's explaining those steps in getting there. Now, how should we think about that from a biblical perspective? Contrary to this step and the thinkers who represent it, such as Marx and Nietzsche, the Bible affirms that there is an inherent moral structure to the world. And that's because God created the world, and he created it with a purpose. And he intends humans to function in it in a particular way. And it's not some kind of arbitrary way, as in a way that couldn't be discerned by looking at nature, but he expects humans to function in a way that's consistent with his design in creation. Now, how do we know this? That there is an intrinsic moral code, we could call this like a built-in oughtness. Something ought to be a certain way. It's built in to the way creation is. That is, I think, first of all, inferable from the way God created the world with intentionality, with purpose, which we find in Genesis 1 and 2 where his purpose in creation is evident. Think, for example, of Genesis 1.26. God creates man as his image and likeness and says he does so for a purpose in order that man may rule. So he creates man ontologically a certain way so that he may then functionally do something. So there's a connection there between those two. So Genesis 1 and 2 is one place that we can see in Scripture this inherent moral structure. Another one we might not initially think of is the book of Proverbs. Not necessarily explicitly teaching it, but everywhere evidencing it as an assumption. The book of Proverbs is in many ways about how to live consistent with the moral structure of the world. To use the metaphor of going with or against the grain, as we might sometimes talk about, you might think of the book of Proverbs as being about learning to live life with the grain of creation. There's a way that creation works, and Proverbs is about learning to live in accordance and and, and consistently with that. So Proverbs would be a second one. Again, doesn't necessarily teach that there's an inherent moral structure, but everywhere seems to suppose that. And then a one that's uh, familiar to us because we've recently been there is Romans 1, 18 and following. Because we've recently been there, I'm not going to spend much time talking through it, but just to point out a few verses... That there is a moral fabric to creation is evident in the way that Paul speaks 
Paul clearly believes there are certain general things that can be discerned from creation, including what that means for our own morality. So I'm just going to look at two particular verses, or two sets of verses. The first, um, particularly 19 and 20, but I'll start reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why are they culpable? Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. How did he do that? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they are without excuse. So there's this design in creation from which the Lord even expects humans to observe it and make certain inferences about truth. Look also at verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural or against nature, is actually the way that the Greek uses it with a prepositional phrase, against nature. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So Paul can speak of certain ways of conducting oneself as being natural, consistent with nature, with the way God created the world, and other ones being contrary to that. So Paul clearly believes there is this inherent moral structure in the world. So what does this look like in practice? What does this mean in practice? Well, to start with one of the more obvious examples, one that will be obvious to all of you, if a person is born with a male body, then they're to function as a male within society. The biology given by God is an example of a moral order that is built into nature, and the principle is that there is a correspondence between that nature and what is expected, what is ethical, what is moral. Now, before we go any further into looking at what this looks like in practice, we must briefly consider the limitations to understanding the fullness of God's purpose and will for us simply by observing nature. So there's a natural revelation. God has revealed himself not only in a special way in his word, but also in a more general way in creation. And yet what we can discern from creation is somewhat limited. So can there be a natural theology, a sense in which we construct a theology simply from what we can discern in, in nature? Well, to a certain extent, if we're content to allow that natural theology to be very thin, lacking much content, because there's not all that much we can really discern. Even Romans 1 is limited in what it says we can discern. We can discern that there's a God who has certain expectations and to whom we're accountable. But it doesn't tell us we can discern too much more than that. Furthermore, not only is natural revelation somewhat limited in what it conveys to us, but we ourselves are, as Paul says, darkened in our understanding because we're fallen. So there's a limitation even in our ability to discern all that we could from nature. Think of it like a, like a rag, squeezing all you can out of it. 
We're, we're quite limited in our ability to get it all, and it's not even a matter of what percentage can we get. It's also a matter of the percentage we begin to try to discern something of. To what extent are we even discerning and interpreting it rightly? Because that's our inclination to misunderstand those things. So, in this fallen world where we're prone to distort reality, we need to not just look at the product, using a metaphor here for creation, that was purposefully designed to determine how it should be used, but we should also, sticking with the metaphor, look to the manufacturer's product manual. And that will give us a whole lot more interpretation explanation. You track with that? So I could pick up an item and just observe the item and try to discern how the manufacturer intended that item to be used. And I might be able to do that with some measure of accuracy, depending upon what the item is, my familiarity with those types of items. But if the manufacturer included a product manual that tells me what it's supposed to be used for, how I should use it, wow, that's going to bring a lot of clarity. And similarly, while there is an inherent moral structure built into the world, We don't want to overplay that as though people can discern everything they need to know from that. There is a need for special revelation, God's word, to help us make sense of his expectations for us. So now let's get a little more practical in what this looks like. If the expressive individual view of the self is the norm within our society, then we'll do well to consider in what ways... This kind of thinking, expressive individualist thinking, has infiltrated our own ways of thinking and how it even comes out in the kinds of things we say, the phrases we use. So here are some things that we can ask. I don't want to overstate these, so I'm going to add some caveats here. One question we can ask ourselves, do we elevate our feelings to a level of importance And maybe it would be better to say it this way. In particular, do we say things that suggest how a person feels should be decisive? How a person feels should be decisive. I think that's a helpful clarification from the first one because our affections are relevant. God cares about what we love, our affections. But what we just naturally feel isn't necessarily decisive for what ought to be. See that distinction? Another question, do we suggest that how our actions or words make someone feel is ethically decisive? This is a common one. As we get into this, you'll you'll see what I mean. Consider these ways of speaking that even find their way into our thinking and speech sometimes. I'll give you two examples. One, the remark was hurtful. Or here's another one. That comment was offensive. Now, Just because something's true, I'm saying this is a caveat, doesn't mean we should say it however we want. We're called to be gentle. But what elicits these comments, like that remark was helpful, uh, sorry, that remark was hurtful, the comment was offensive, what elicits these comments so often is not that the confrontation or the correction was harsh, but that there was confrontation or correction at all. For, this is why it makes sense within the context, within the worldview of expressive individualism, for if my inner feelings are authoritative and the highest morality is to be authentic to myself, 
then no one should tell me what I should or should not do. To do so, regardless of how it's done, is inherently hurtful or offensive. So the fact that it offends me is ethically decisive that it was wrong. Does that make sense? So do we use language like that? Are we picking up on language like that that suggests that that's the case? Now, we may not buy into all of this reasoning, but by unwittingly using the language that flows out of that worldview, we also may be subtly reinforcing those ways of thinking, both for ourselves and for others. The issue isn't whether I psychologically feel hurt or offended. That is quite irrelevant as a judge of someone else's words. That is to make my inner feelings the authority. But if the authority is God, then we need to judge their words by God's standard. And if what they said is true, and if it was stated thoughtfully and gently, then that was good. And if I feel offended, the problem is with my response, not their words. People do communicate, we should recognize, in ways that God deems harsh. But we should call it what it is. It's speaking in harsh ways, rather than using the categories of an unbiblical worldview. The issue isn't how it made us feel. The issue is that they communicate in ways that God says are are inappropriate. Another one, um, I'm going to skip over this one because it depends upon a metaphor, which I'll probably need to explain. Do we believe and affirm with the way we talk that what wells up within us is never guaranteed to be good. Because, as Jeremiah 17.11 says, our inner man is desperately wicked. Is that the way we tend to think? I can never trust what wells up within me? Not only is it not guaranteed to be good, but we should assume that it normally will not be good. We should expect that what comes from within our hearts will be bad. And therefore, this is completely the opposite of romanticism that I mentioned earlier. Therefore, what is best for us and for society is to deny and to restrain those feelings. So just to state it bluntly, denial and restraint of what we feel is a virtue. That's countercultural, but we must continue to embrace that because that's exactly what Scripture says. External standards that restrain what we feel within, our ability to express those things, are good and should be embraced. We should embrace external standards when they're appropriate standards, biblically consistent standards. And that when those norms come from an appropriate authority, it is good that we strive to conform ourselves to them. See, one way that we can even sometimes become a bit getting caught up in this is when we begin to buy into the movement that just wants to throw off authority altogether, that's skeptical of all authority. Authority is something God has set up, right? Romans 13. And so it certainly can be abused, but we shouldn't initially be suspicious of it. I really appreciated the way that uh, Kevin DeYoung helpfully and directly applied the truth of Jeremiah 17.11 in a commencement address he gave in May of this year at Geneva College. This was quite contrary to what you would expect 
from a commencement address. This is the, the key statement. He said, do not follow your dreams. Do not march to the beat of your own drummer. And whatever you do, he said, do not be true to yourself. Now, to fairly represent him, he did follow that up and say, there might be a little bit of hyperbole in that, and it probably needs a little bit of nuance, but I think that's helpfully stated, and what's so helpful about it is it sounds exactly the opposite and almost out of place and just inappropriate to say at a commencement address. But that's just showing you how, how far the, is the opposite. We're almost telling people these days, you know, the expressive individual worldview in graduation ceremonies and commencement addresses, in the very times when they need biblical counsel. And we don't need to be constrained by standards that say, well, you, you've got to encourage people in these superficial ways because that's what we do in this context, but be willing to speak truth to them in those contexts rather than just glossing over, sometimes using the language of the world and hoping that people don't actually think we mean it. Another question for us. Do we help others around us see that God has created the world with an intrinsic moral structure that is, that certain ways of living lead to flourishing and others to misery. When we talk about what God expects, his instructions, we should help people understand that these are not cruel laws, but really instructions for flourishing, because there's an inherent moral structure in creation. And because we can often see how living with the grain will lead to flourishing, we can often show others how God's instructions are good. When the goodness of God's prescriptions is evident, let's demonstrate that. Let's show people how it leads to flourishing, not just that it's some kind of random law that we've got to conform to without really having any idea about how that actually is helpful. I want to wrap this up and leave a few moments for questions, but I, I wanted to just briefly insert there, having said that, a caveat. If we aren't careful, the attempt to do that, to try to show how God's instructions lead to, say, flourishing, how they're good, can begin to suggest, we could begin to think ourselves, that the decisive factor for what's right and wrong is if it makes sense to us, if it appears that it works well to us, and that we believe and obey God because it seems like it makes sense. We can see it with our own eyes. And at the end of the day, we've actually subverted biblical authority, and we've begun to follow God and his word when it makes sense to us. Can you see how that happens? When you begin to almost show that we should do this because look how clear it is, rather than simply saying we should do it because that's what God says we should do. And yet, I hope you're sensing the balance here, when we can see how it flows out, how that's beneficial, let's draw that out without suggesting that that is ultimate or decisive. Because surely there will be times where what God calls us to is not something that with our own eyes, with our own reasoning, makes sense or seems like the right way. There are times where leaning upon the Lord looks like not doing what's right in our own eyes. And we need to be willing to yield to God's authority in those moments. So that's just a smattering of ways we might apply this. 
But let me summarize here as I close. The first step to getting where we are today in the West was the move of authority to people's feelings, internalizing authority. And that was, by, that was done by affirming that people are inherently good until they're corrupted by society. The implication is that what comes from within is to be trusted. What is imposed from without is to be rebelled against. This marked a major shift from the reformational view in which, in that view, people are inherently sinful and God has graciously put restraints into society to restrain the wickedness within. Things like government, parents, even just concerns for common decency are a common grace even though they do restrain, because they do restrain. And in this approach, the, the reformational view, just think about applying this specifically to the role of education. I remember we first taught this at the teacher's orientation, TCS teacher orientation, but I think you'll find this interesting as well. Under that reformational view, the role of education is to teach children to restrain what naturally comes from within. It's about teaching them these, how to live consistent with that inherent moral code. It's really about teaching them restraint. But in the romantic shift, the goal of education can no longer be the same. The logical outworking would be to teach children to be suspicious of rules or external authority, to rebel against, and to seek to express what comes from their heart. And that's consistent with what we see. And so in that realm, education becomes all about creating a platform for young people to express what they feel within. Basically a stage for performance, to be able to live that out. So the first step was teaching people to trust their feelings. And then the second step was to remove any belief in an inherent moral order to the world. That is to reject ethical or moral absolutes. And the biblical response is to reject both of these steps, affirming that God, that because God created the world, there's an inherent moral structure in the world rooted in God's purpose for the world, and to not trust our feelings, but to subject them to the truth we find outside of ourselves in the world. So that's the, the second step. Let me see what time it is. 5.59, so we do have a few minutes for questions. There's a certain hesitation with opening up for questions, I think in part because when we stand up here and open up a passage, there's a certain level of, uh, I don't want to say expertise, but spending a long time studying it, it's within my wheelhouse, but when it comes to tracing out these philosophers, I feel a bit less competent, but nonetheless, we'll still open it. Clay, do you have a question? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably best. I could hypothesize, but I don't know. I mean, part of it's probably an inherited worldview. I mean, even many of his contemporaries, he was French, but in America, would take the title deist, 
but within that, they were essentially just theistic rationalists. They believe a lot of the same things Christians did, but not because the scriptures say it, just because they believe they can see that in creation. They can discern that. And even down to details we wouldn't expect. Like, they would expect that after death there will be a future judgment, but that just comes from the observation in creation that there are, um, you get what you sow. And so surely if that's not always being brought clearly to justice here, there must be something like that to happen in the future. And so uh, I think that was probably part of like what, what they might have inherited, but that's a guess. Go ahead, Peter. Yes, so I'm not an expert in Marxism. I've read the Communist Manifesto, but that's the extent. I've never read Capital. Um, but my understanding is he believes that the bourgeois class, the bourgeoisie, has already robbed the proletariat class just because of the, the level to which they've been suppressed economically from even kind of enjoying those things. And that now a nuclear family is really primarily a a construct or, or something that's experienced by the bourgeois class, and that therefore, as a part of getting rid of the bourgeois class, it too will go. I think if Marx was here today, he would probably say, look at the extent to which the nuclear family is dissolved among the most impoverished portions of America, and, and that would be supporting his thesis, which presumably he saw elsewhere. I'm not saying that it does support his thesis. I'm just saying that's, that's the way he reasons. Because you're right, he is explicit in the Communist Manifesto that the nuclear family must go. Yeah. Part of the inherent moral code? Yeah. So those are the types of reasons that he explicitly states. But maybe from a more insightful example, we might infer that part of it is simply this general human tendency to want to reject any kind of inherent moral structure, and that's a representation of that inherent moral structure. But that would be to go beyond what he ever suggests, and he gives a reason for doing that, which is more in the realm of economics. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, I think that might be right. I think you would affirm that. There's an, like an inherently a a conservative with a lowercase c nature to the family. It tends to conserve the same views and, and not tend to progressive views. Yeah. And he does, like, he'll even affirm some other type of socialist or communist that he won't quite agree with. He'll, he'll say how he can't agree with them, but at the very least, they're encouraging the class struggle, so I hope people read them, he'll say. <laughs> Go ahead, John. 
Um, I don't. If you read that one, then there's obviously a longer treatment in the rise and triumph of the modern self, um, which will go into much more detail. But no, I don't have, have anything else. Presbyterian and Reformed, the publisher PNR, they've got a series of books called Great Thinkers. And by great thinkers, they aren't necessarily condoning them or, or propping them up as much as just trying to analyze in short space, about 100 pages, just a variety of thinkers. And so there is one on Marx, um, which just attempts for Christians to better understand him. There's also one coming out by Carl Truman, actually, on Nietzsche. Yeah, so it might be a series you in particular would be interested in. <laughs> Go ahead, Aiden. Nope. <laughs> I'm sure we could. It wouldn't be mere speculation to do that. I, mean, I think some people could potentially see where that's going, but I'm going to refrain from attempting to do that. It's a fair question. Never be afraid to say you don't know. All right, any others? All right. Well, I hope as we keep moving through this, this is helpful. If you have thought about picking up the book, haven't picked it up, and one of your reasons is because sitting through this, this seems like difficult stuff to understand, I would say that Carl Truman does a much better and much clearer job explaining it than we can do. It really is a remarkably clearly written book, and I think that's because he first wrote a larger version and then came back and completely rewrote it on a more simplified scale. Um, and just, he, he wrote that remarkably well. If you're intimidated, I would encourage you, consider picking it up um, and trying to read it, because it is very readable, very helpful, probably much simpler than I made it sound. <laughs> yes, uh, the local library systems are a part of, or kind of give you access to an app called Hoopla, through which you can get free audiobooks, a certain number of free audiobooks, like four or so, five or so per month. Um, that would be Bedford County, Lynchburg, and Campbell County, and it's on Hoopla. So if you just want to listen to it as an audiobook, through that you can get access to it as an audiobook for free. All right, let me close this in prayer. Lord, we're aware that whenever we approach these matters, a certain self-righteousness is lurking at the door of our hearts. And so we pray that you would help us first to be those who, who work to get the speck out of our own eye, for surely in these matters we are not without fault. So I pray, Lord, that you would illumine our, heart, our minds as we discern what is in our hearts and that we would um, just be growing in greater clarity about how we are to understand ourselves in, in these matters through a biblical worldview. And then may we um, just so consistently live out of that that... Uh, we don't seem like those who are just muddled somewhere between worldviews, but can correct other people and show them a better way, uh, just with a measure of integrity and consistency in our own thinking that makes that appealing. Surely we know that they need the gospel and a new heart to change their ways of thinking. Um, and yet we pray, Lord, that you would just use our interactions with neighbors and, and others and, and coworkers. Um, that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of the, the changes within society, uh, that you would use all of this 
as we're, as we're inclined to see it as all being bad, to, to really wake some up as your means to, to regenerate them and to save some around us. Um, and we do thank you just for the opportunity to think through these things, to gain clarity, and may even the clarity we're gaining about how, how the thinking happens within this worldview help us as we engage others, that it's not just some alien thing, but we can anticipate where they're going. We can understand where they're coming from so that, so that we can help them see the error of their ways and, and lead them in repentance and yielding themselves in faith to your word. Um, we do thank you for this time together. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.